This week, we finally get to meet fantastical Prager's Genesis, who blend British humor, Greek myth, and theatrical sensibilities to create their own unique version of Prague. This week, we're talking about Genesis's 1971 album, Nursery Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. I am your host, Ian Prize, and today we are talking about Genesis's nursery crime. So, Genesis was formed in 1967 in the Charter House Boarding School with lead singer and flute player Peter Gabriel, bassist Mike Rutherford, keyboardist Tony Banks, and original guitarist Anthony Phillips. They had just started to make a name for themselves after their second album, Trespass, and had started to work on material for the next album, but the constant touring was wearing down on Anthony Phillips, and they decided they needed a newer, more adventurous drummer. So they auditioned and were then joined by the Phil Collins on drums and Steve Hackett on guitar. The addition of these two new musicians would take the compositional and theatrical talents of Peter Tony, and Mike to another level, Steve would conscientiously pull them towards a prog rock style in addition to providing his soaring guitar melodies, and Phil provided a torrent of jazzy drums and importantly formed a more solid foundation for the group and would soften the intrapersonal clashes between the strong personalities within the band. So for this album, they went to their manager's country manor to compose their next album, Nursery Crime where the full spectrum of Genesis would be on display. Namely, beautifully arranged songs with a heavy dose of Peter Gabriel's rambling theatrics. So, Genesis, Genesis, Genesis. So my introduction to Genesis was through Selling England by the Pound. As usual, this was on one of the greatest prog albums of all time list, but traveling backwards through their catalog, I got to Nursery Crime. For the approximately first four minutes of Music Box, I was confused. And then the band kicked in, and Steve Hackett's guitar just opens up the heavens. And ever since then, the rest of the album has grown on me. I think it's an album that covers a lot of ground. So to cover that ground today, I am joined by the one and only Ed. Hello. And I am joined by the singular, tingler, Rufus Da. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Hi, guys. So, today we are going to talk about Genesis's 1971 album, Nursery Crime. So, I guess we'll start with you there, Rufus. How did you feel about uh, Nursery Crime? Have you you heard it much before? Fantastic album. Fantastic album. Excellent. Yeah, no, this is the first time listening to it. Obviously, I've listened to a lot of more recent Genesis, you know, when they lost uh, Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins kind of took over. Uh, so this was quite nice to delve deeper into the earlier stuff. I think generally I really liked it. It's very whimsical and playful and at times quite, I guess, jokey. Yep. And it's clear it has this mythological theme running throughout. And uh, I think it has all the aspects of prog rock that I really enjoy uh, sort of listening to and consuming. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, it's a good album. There, are, I have problems with it and we'll get into it. But there, are, overall, it was, it was a good listen. Delightful listen. Yeah. Uh, so, Ed, where does Genesis sit for you, and where does this album <laughs> sit for you and Genesis? Uh, for me, Genesis, I'm very 50-50 with. I either love it or hate it. And and luckily, you asked me to listen to The Love Camp. I okay. really, really yeah. like this. I really like this album. Um, it's completely mad. Haunted Nursery, Rampant Hogweed, Victorian Whimsy. It's It's just... It's just odd. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, I, <laughs> it's so you know, I'd love to. Well, maybe I wouldn't like to dive into the head of you know the the songwriting in this one. But yeah, no, it's great. It's great. I think um, I'm glad they took that departure from all the biblical connotations and stuff of the first two albums. Um, and, and it's like you say, it's fun. Doing something a bit different. You mentioned that you know they're, they're all sort of public school boys, and I think for the you know the um, American audience. Now, public school sounds like it's a working class thing, but it's quite the opposite. You know, this the school they went to was, you know, your your parents would be putting their, you know, in, in today's money, their sort of whole yearly income would pay for, like a, you know, a child's 
one year. <laughs> so like these are posh kids, but you've got Phil Collins in Hackett who turn up who seem to be a little bit more normal. Yeah. <laughs> I say normal. You know what I mean? And I think they they put in a bit of normal energy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, those those first two albums they're basically talking about all that they know in their life, you know, their boarding school stuff. They've never hung out with girls and stuff like that. <laughs> and then you've got these two normal guys who rock up and the whole feel just feels a little bit more relatable. I was watching an interview from uh, Phil that perfectly depicts that, that point. He essentially says he turned up, you know, when he joined and everyone was so stuck up and so prickly that they would just have humongous fights all the time <laughs> and he would be sat there being like what the fuck is going on and it's because they all took it so seriously uh, and he was and he quite literally put it as well you know i'd been around quite a lot by this point you know i'd hung out with girls and stuff and all they really knew was public yeah, school there you go mm. yeah that explains a lot doesn't it, it well i was yeah. gonna say i think this this era of genesis is yeah a lot is explained by the interpersonal relationships because as Mike Rutherford would kind of lay it out in his book, him and Anthony, the ex-guitarist, used to be like a writing partnership. Mm. And obviously that he left. So Phil and Peter really found a kinship. Because Peter really likes drums and Phil really likes singing. And so they actually shared both of those things. And then Mike and Tony would just kind of bring stuff into the band and then Steve really wouldn't develop his writing wings, probably till his, his own career, but Steve would be there chucking his ideas in as well. It sounds like it was a really kind of rough environment where you're throwing your stuff in and, and you're fighting your, your corner. And I will say it gives this album compositionally a really interesting feel because everyone's had a say. And uh, you can really feel that the album jumps probably every 15 seconds. To a new idea. And I think the most interesting thing about this era of Genesis specifically is you could probably, like, I'm sure there's lots of examples of, of verse and chorus, but I don't really know what they are. And all of the songs, even the shorter songs, even though I know technically there's a verse and a chorus or whatever, it feels like it's just an idea and an idea and an idea just rolling one after another and it just rolls over you and it's delightful and beautiful and it's bold. And like it or lump it, I don't think you'd ever get bored. And I think the really delightful part about this album is it has all of the bits of Genesis. I don't know if I'm willing to say fully formed, but they're all there. So we've got Tony's kind of organ washes. Uh, you've got the triplets that they just love doing. I think if I mm. knew more of the chord progressions, I think I hear like Genesis classic chord progressions. It's got... It's got some of Steve Hackett's just best guitar work of all time, which we'll definitely get into, some of Phil Collins' best drum work, which we'll get into, and then on top of it all, Peter Gabriel singing his crazy, crazy tunes, but really putting putting so much gusto into the acting of the songs. When you hear them talk about it in interviews, that seems to be like one of their favorite ways to make a Genesis song is to have this kind of slowly evolving piece of music that delves into all these weird and wonderful rhythms and musical melodies, etc. Just utter craziness seems to be the the name of the game for 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 their enjoyment at least of it. I completely concur. I think the utter craziness. Mm is assisted in a large way, and we'll get into all of these, by Peter Gabriel's various tales he tells. And I think the fascinating thing about Genesis in this era is all of the songs are about something. You know, it's not just a... Well, it's not a yes song where it's about who knows what. And it's not a normal song where it's kind of in a vague sense, you know, about don't stopping believing. There's not just like a sweet little chorus or whatever. Peter Gabriel is acting a play in pretty much every song. <laughs> so I, I think something else I really, really thought about this album is it's such a unique sound. Do you guys have any thoughts on what makes it such a unique sound? <laughs> I could go on all day about that. But, um, <laughs> but I guess you've got two new members. There's a lot of excitement, I think. I think, um, you know, having such a strong drummer 
really driving the whole thing. To my ears, that's a that's a really good recording for the time. You know, the the drums just sound quite modern. Everything's quite you know the use of compression and stuff on the beats is just like it's just it's got a lot of smack to the. the it to me that sounds quite quite modern and it's um, yeah it must have been quite exciting. I think it really kind of I don't know it's it's the bedrock of the whole thing. But then I think the way the guitar and the the keys, you know, you can't really tell where one finishes and one begins because the tones kind of similar. It just sounds like a lot of notes. <laughs> it just sounds like it's a quite lot of chaotic, notes. Yeah. It? yeah, but it, it's it you know it's just loads of energy. There's lot there's a lot going on, and it's as a guitarist, I think Steve Hackett right there and then is like the most prog thing there's ever been. You know, he really is progressive with his guitar playing you know at that time you know so many guitarists are like they're so blues influenced to hear someone who's kind of playing more kind of modally there's more sort of classical scales in there and maybe something that's more um influenced by the the odd tuning that they're using with the 12 strings it's just not what i expect for something of the time it's like a really good example of prog rock yep at such an early time before a lot of these bands really, you know, started throwing that prog idea about the place. This guy is progressive. I think that's like a really good point about them having so much energy because they've got these new band members. Mm. Like, I, I feel I feel as if you can almost feel it in the songs because there's so much going on, because there's so many new ideas that they've decided to try and fill as many as they can into each song and, and it and that certainly adds to the the general feel of the songs, like you were saying. I really agree with that. And, and imagine it, album three, where you think like you've known everyone, and then you've got this, this mm. you know, like the drums are such a big difference to the previous drummer. It's just like, wow, we've got a real drummer here, you know. So um, there's a quote from Peter Gabriel that I thought was quite good that spoke about this. And so when he was talking about bringing on Phil and Steve, uh, some of the things he said were essentially that you know, Phil brought great grooves uh, that lifted the foundation of the songs, and then he described Steve as a as a colouring agent. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Peter Gabriel describes a lot of the songs in this album as having this undercurrent of feeling and frustration um, that he felt was like only sometimes conveyed. And what it seems to be is that he thought Steve was such a good fit because he shared these feelings of frustration. Uh, and this desire to convey a sense of emotion that wasn't necessarily like apparent in the song, uh, and so by Steve being there, it contributed to this overall vibe or feeling, which I think is quite interesting. Because my my read on like Phil is, um, I think, d- has been described as earthy, um, and I think mm. that's true both musically and personality-wise. I think he's he has the I'm a regular guy type of energy, and I think Steve has always been self-consciously prog he calls himself a prog musician one of the few to actually think of himself as a prog musician and so Mm. i think you're completely right that i think they both anchor genesis on this end of the you know groove drums and soaring proggy guitar spectrum (laughs) and then you've got uh Mike, Tony, and Peter, who are the main songwriters, really filling out the middle there, where they actually make the songs, and they make the songs work. This is a really delightful era of Genesis for that reason. Hmm. Mm. It's funny when you say about, you know, Steve seeing himself as prog artist, the original advert he put himself out as. It's quite interesting. The word in here is imaginative guitarist writer seeks involvement with receptive musicians determined to strive beyond existing stagnant music form. And that's and that's what he did. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. That is fantastic. It sounds like it comes from a place of, you know, disdain for what's already out there. You know? <laughs> Interesting. So I think this is kind of the era of prog music where these bands are really starting to notice that they are inventing a thing, that there's a scene mm-hmm. going on. Like they're no longer in the post Beatles psychedelia era I think all of the bands are beginning to understand and some defy the label and some accept the label that they are now progressive musicians and I think that's going to be going on for the next three to five years so without further ado then we will just dive right into this this album that's so packed full of goodness 
So we start the song with The Music Box, and The Music Box is one of just those Genesis songs that I think Genesis fans really like, and it's obvious why. As all classic albums do, it starts with this kind of calling card song. On an album that has all of the Genesis songs, it starts with a song that has all of the Genesis elements. So we've got this kind of folky beginning. Um, We've got these Victorian lyrics that are apparently about a ghost. And we've got a blazing guitar solo in the middle. So walk me through the the music box. Firstly, I think the lyrics need delving into. So from what I understand, it's about elite level sort of children, as in from the, the upper classes, one decapitating the other one with a croquet mallet. Okay. And then taking the spirit of the decapitated head quickly takes the form of the music box or lives in the music box. And then the subject watches the the spirit sort of age dramatically in front of them. Yeah, what on earth is going on there? Well, <laughs> and how much of this did you get from the actual song? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's from someone explaining it to me. I didn't, I, there we I, go. you know. Yeah. I think the only lyric that really stayed in my head at the end of it was, you know, get to know your flesh. Oh, yeah. That's yep. so <laughs> stayed oh, in my so, Actually, uh, so I will, I will rush to the defense of Peter Gabriel. Do you not think that this song specifically is packed to the brim with vocal tags? I guess I'll call them. Because there's obviously the touch me now, old King Cole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, sure. as in, I just feel like, oh, my God, there's so many, like, bits and to be fair, on on the sort of the mad lyrics, you know, it is meant to be quite a grown up message as well. It's about sexual violence and all this sort of stuff. There is like yeah. complicated undercurrents to that. It's just easy to poke fun at because it just sounds so mad from the the explanation later. But yeah, like you know, these it's surprisingly grown up for um, for young guys. I think the subject matter. But yeah, like you say, there's 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 a lot more going on than just the lyrics as well. It's the way it's delivered. And... So I, <laughs> so I I wrote a little note here that says uh, this reminds me of when the music's over the door song because it's got that a bunch of stuff it builds and builds and builds. This being the musical box. Yes, and then I wrote distinctly not sexy, <laughs> <laughs> as if they owed me their sexiness, and yet here we are. Peter Gabriel, he describes the lyrics as an attempt to convey like this veneer of a quaint English mental landscape mm. beneath which lies sex and violence. Okay. It just seems like he really likes undertones, doesn't he, <laughs> Peter? He's just really into it. And that seems to be quite the case in this song, doesn't it? I mean, I think he's got that, the, again, this the dramatic eye where there's the scene and there's the scene under the scene. Mm. Yeah. The subtext is everything. Exactly. <laughs> And I think because his songs are rare in that they are text, like his songs are almost a narrative or almost like a dialogue, I think he's he's then allowed to then sneak in the subtext. Mm. So something I wanted to just bring up, because I don't know the truth of this, but so quite literally Steve Hackett has come on record saying that, that this was one of the first instances of tapping, like guitar tapping, and that he made it up. Is that true? Like, I don't know the history of this, but... And I think I've seen Rory Gallagher doing it earlier. Yeah, okay, but apparently this is true, like he says. So yeah. it's one of those. I think, that, you know, there's always someone who's done something before you, but what a recording of it. I think that it's, mm. it's got to be the best example of it recorded at this point, definitely. Mm. You know, like I say, I, I feel like I've seen like live performances of Rory Gallagher doing it, but I can't be sure of the date. So he may have he may have picked it up from watching Hackett as well. I don't know, but I certainly haven't heard it recorded anywhere else before. Because it would be crazy that guitars having been around, you know, for like four hundred so years by this point <laughs> that no one yeah. tried. But I, I think this is like when I think of the Eddie Van Halen style of tapping, mm. I honestly can't yeah. think of an earlier example. Because even like you know Jimi Hendrix, you've had three years of guitar god Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton, but they mm. weren't tappers in that way. And actually, I'll, I'll expand this question then, because so my, my read in a subjective sense is Steve Hackett has a really clean sound, but also a very soaring sound. Yeah. For for a layman, what's the magic of, of Steve? What is he doing okay. there? Well, um, so yeah, like what I think's going on is 
He's forcing his amp to break up before it does so with the volume. Now, that's happening naturally because he's using a Les Paul and they've got more output anyway. But I think he's using a, a treble booster. And, I'm, and I know he uses one now because when I was buying mine, <laughs> I've got, I got the same one. Oh, <laughs> so he's actually, yeah, there you go. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so he's using um, an Analog Man Beano Boost, which is an incredible sounding thing. And, you know, Les Paul, that, and a big tube amp is just... And that gives you that, that really soaring... Yeah, so that's... When, when you think of, yeah, soaring overdrive sound that isn't gritty, you know, you think Brian May, Roy Gallagher... Jimmy Page sometimes. Uh, it's it's that same sort of sound. But like you say, you sometimes hear this incredible fuzz tone. You know, Steve Hackett's tone is quite soaring. Yeah. Apparently he used to play sitting down and he'd point his headstock of the guitar at that sweet spot on the amp that made it sort of feedback. Oh, interesting. But because he was always sat down and wasn't really moving around a lot. He can he'd do this on stage as well and it would he would just always be in control of this feedback point. Now that you mention it, that's almost the sound of his guitars is like control feedback. <laughs> it's <laughs> um, like it's just it's just on that point, isn't it? They've... It's biting but not painful. So hmm. well, well done Steve. <laughs> it's funny how they chose that in a way as well, because the keyboard is almost always put through a fuzz box. Is it <laughs> Yeah, and this this originated with Tony having to do that because he would play the lead lines on his keyboard. Right. Okay. So he describes playing the lead line with one hand and you know what he would normally be playing with his left. This was kind of like in the seventy seventy one time when they were trying to find a guitarist before they came across Steve Hackett. Right. right? So some of that has kind of seeped into the the album. Interesting. And you get these clashing. Tones, right? In the same way that you get Phil and Peter Gabriel having very similar voices and thus when they sing together having this kind of overall tone, hmm. also the keyboard and the guitar seem to have this overall tone because they're playing the same lines. Yeah. I mean, not all the time, obviously, but it happens. No, but there's sometimes it is hard to hear where one starts if one finishes. And you said they said that they love these triplets, but like they, they do kind of mirror mm. each other nicely, don't they? If you think about, you know, like I might buy a fuzz pedal every month, but back in them days, they probably had one fuzz pedal that, like you say, they they plugged the keyboard into. And then, you know, when Hackett joined the band, I think he it was his idea to get the Mellotron. Which they bought off King Crimson. Oh, That's snap. great, isn't it? <laughs> so they had this new sound. They probably didn't always need to have the fuzz pedal plugged in. And it is that... MK2 one, isn't it, that the, the Beatles use? And we've talked about that being almost the sound of early prog yeah. before, haven't we? How, <laughs> how important that, that keyboard is, so that's interesting. But yeah, if, if they've got this new device with a new sound, they might have that same fuzz pedal um, freed up to stick the guitar in, so it might even be the same fuzz box. But there wasn't a lot of options in them days, so it was probably... You know, like a, a some kind of tone bender type fuzz, and you can hear at the end of uh, Fountain of Salmacis. Yeah. <laughs> How do you say? Yeah. How do you even say that? Salmacis or something. I don't know. You know Salmacis. what? I honestly have yeah. no idea. But if you listen to the outro solo on that, you hear this incredible kind of octave doubling effect. The octave fuzz they use, and that sounds incredible. But that that's another type of soaring tone that's quite. The opposite, it's not clean at all. It's scratchy, and I, I think I love that sound. And I was going to say, I, I think that's why, again, they're just such a perfect prog group. Both Tony and Steve really run the gamut of their various instruments in terms of what they're trying to do with them. They don't find mm. a tone and stick to it. They really they try out this, try out that. An absolute delight. Well, I just I just found it interesting that the idea of using the high watt amp comes from this love of the who and the who being this kind of pop band and then you hear this and it's completely <laughs> completely the opposite isn't it it's uh it's just fascinating how you can take one influence and end up in a completely different place i just i just found that brilliant well and i, I think you know these are the the prog bands that make it so i think genesis mm. covetously eyeing the who taking on the successful elements of them yes looking at Simon and Garfunkel and taking on their successful elements. 
warehouses. I think in in that sense, these are the these are the ones that make it. And then Soft Machine is eyeing up free jazz. And end of story there. <laughs> Again, I think that the prog bands that really make it are the prog bands that tried and then failed to just make a pop song, but they tried to go that way. And then obviously they just had to keep adding stuff to the songs. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to bring up just two thoughts about this song as well, because they also bring up a lot of other things for me in Genesis. The first one is, so apparently there's no bass for the first half of the song. And I hadn't thought about that. And then I was like, oh, yeah, there's no bass for the first half of the song. But it's very interesting. I actually couldn't really tell you any bass part in Genesis. And I actually think that's a really interesting facet of Genesis is there's a lot going on. But there's mm-hmm. no, like, ain't no mountain high enough kind of bass parts with a capital P. Maybe that's where they went wrong. They just let's, let's, like, <laughs> let's just go to, like, an alternate universe where you've got all the same albums, just, like, funk bass lines. And the, that's <laughs> that's amazing. Slapping. Slapping that bass. <laughs> okay, so the other thing, because that solo, like, the middle solo really makes me think about this, and this is something, again, we'll explore for the rest of the album. I just love that there's a middle, middle solo. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Just, there's, yeah there's, it's, not just, <laughs> it's not just a solo. It's like there's a three in there. This is kind of what I'm getting at. Is I think the fact that it's like very obviously just patched elements onto the song. It's like okay, we're gonna do a blazing solo, and it's a blazing solo. Then we mm. stop, and he sings about old King Cole, and then we come back for more. This is m- music theorist Ian now. I really love when bands do that, and I think that's what Yes was so successful at, is that they Mm. have a new thing every 15 seconds. With Yes, though, they were very chaotic in their music production, weren't they? And um, their chaos enabled them to create those new riffs every 15 seconds, but... (laughs) was genesis like that i don't i feel like they weren't right and that's very apparent especially on this album even though the songs have that chaotic energy or not even chaotic energy energetic energy (laughs) it's very clear to me at least like you can hear that they went off to the manor in the countryside jammed out some songs and then came to record it they called it Toad Hall, by the way. Oh, that's so <laughs> delightfully English. <laughs> yeah. It was clear that they had like this beautiful little countryside retreat. They wrote some songs, came back, recorded them, and it makes the album really whole. And it sounds like they played it. Yeah, it's, it sounds like continuous development, yep. those songs, definitely. When you hear them talk about their sort of production sessions, it always seems as if they've done it as a working day. Mm. talk about it later but with Fountain they talk about it being strange that they stayed up until the midnight hours to to work on it and instead most of the time when it got dark they would just say right see you tomorrow yep 9 to (laughs) 5 way to make a living working (laughs) working 9 to (laughs) 5 so we started explosively with the music box We, we go for a little gentle one now so we have four absent friends which is a Phil and Steve Hackett composition. As far as I understand, it's just two ladies sitting on a bench talking about the village going by, I guess. I think that's the story, mainly. For me, this is a fine enough song. I think probably where it stands in this album is it let Phil and Steve feel that sweet, sweet confidence to know that they were part of the band. Like, this is their both of their first composition for this band that they've just joined, and it lets them come out of the shell. And this is Phil's first vocal performance, I believe, with the band. And, again, sets up the fact that him and Peter really sound quite similar, uh, which will stand Genesis in good stead for the rest of their career. Yeah, they really do sound similar, don't they? Um, I don't know if that's Phil sounds similar to... Peter Gabriel, or if Phil's just got quite a lot of range and can just pop himself there when required. For me, Phil always sounds like Phil. I think Peter puts on voices. like <laughs> That's like 90% of what Peter does. But Phil sounds like Phil. And I think Peter's most neutral voice is also yeah. Phil's voice. You know, And I think you know this is true for, say, Pink Floyd as well, where David and Rick had a close enough but different enough and Paul and John, close enough but different enough. I think there's just these... I feel like these guys are closer, though, than those. Oh, yeah, they're, they're like siblings, if not twins. 
I was going to say, are they from the same part of the country? Because you've got the same accent. Mm. You do tend to do similar things with that your vowels sense. or whatever, don't you? But I was thinking Phil Collins being kind of a bit of a, a bit of a cockney. Uh, he's cockney. Yeah, he's, he's a London man. Right, and uh, then Peter, real quick. Chobham. Classic Chobham accent. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. So, yeah, very different. <laughs> very different. It's funny because it sounds like a doubling effect, right? I think that's, again, just these lucky serendipities. How lucky that it was that Phil could actually sing, because obviously they hired him for his outrageous drumming, but he could sing. And sing well enough that it sounded like a doubling, but again, a doubling that wasn't just a creepy copy that really thickened yeah. up the mix. It's kind mm. of like those higher registers, isn't it, really? If you listen to Phil's voice, it's a bit more a bit more in the mids, whereas I feel like when Peter's just singing, he's a bit more uh, bassy, lower mid, if that makes sense. I mean, there must be... Was it like soprano and all that stuff? I don't know the words. We don't it, need technical there. terms. Yeah, we <laughs> just give opinions. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've had a, a pastoral walk through the countryside, but... What do we see over the horizon? Why, a giant hogweed, of course. <laughs> Fucking hogweed. <laughs> That's funny as fuck. <laughs> so, we have got the return of the giant hogweed, and it's a song about an invasive plant species literally invading England. Or probably the whole world, I guess, is kind of where the song was going. It's uh, probably, I, I'm going to say, the most theatrical song on this album by a long shot. Eight minutes of rampaging plants. It really has that stompy feel, doesn't it? (laughs) It's stomping. I feel like this is a good enough song to to bring up Phil's drumming. Because Phil, obviously, he's he's joined the team. Rufus, and then maybe Ed, do you have any thoughts on what makes Phil such a a Phil-ish drummer? Well, I think it's it's funny that we were talking about the Who earlier. I think something that is underappreciated in drumming that often defines some of the best drummers is that they will play to the song, not just with the song. So a perfect example of this is Keith Moo from The Who. He's fantastic at it. As, as, you know, you you listen to Pinball Wizard, and one of the reasons why that song is so good is because he plays to the song, not with the song. And I think that Phil does this too. And this is really divisive in, in, in prog rock because I think, you know, other bands don't do this and i think they are lesser for it basically not overall but just like you know the song could be better if if their drummer did this uh and i Mm. think it's true for a lot of the the music back in the 60s 70s and even the early 80s some of the better bands had drummers like this and that's why they were partly so successful yep um so yeah phil does it well yeah phil does it real well and and i think again because it's such a theatrical song the fact that he inserted himself into all of the various comings and goings, the the weaves of the song, mm. you know, rather than just laying a straight beat down. Yeah. So, yeah, this is just a delightful era of, of Phil. Mm, for sure. Yeah. I think he really plays with the hits of the song in terms of the, its accent in yeah. any given song. And that can be centered around where he places the bass drum or where he decides to put a solo. The way he plays his solos always complement the melody. And that's why it works so so much. Because if you play a solo that doesn't complement the melody, then the drums come to the forefront in terms of what the listener is listening to. And then that actually detracts from the song because people are like, oh, right, okay, here goes the drummer doing a, a tom fill or whatever. Great. Back into the song. Yep, you're sonically confused. Yep. Yeah, sonically yeah. confused. That's a sick... I like that term a lot. That's, that's a really band cool. name right there. <laughs> that's a great band. <laughs> you're talking about the, um, the tapping thing that Hackett does. And it's like the song starts with that, a really good example of it, and that with the, the Mellotron together, doing the triplets together. And yet it is Phil's drumming that, that, <laughs> that I'm listening to yeah. in that. Despite the excitement of that, it's Phil's drum sound. It's just so like, it's just like so clean hitting the way it's mixed, yeah. the way it, it just pushes through the mix. Yeah, it's just a great sound. I've, I've heard this track has been described as almost proto punk. So just to put a question out there to you, what does that mean to you guys? So the, the most obvious one is it's a really aggressive track. Like there's a lot of stuff going on here in terms of like powerful boom, boom, boom type of music. But I think the bigger one for me 
is Peter Gabriel's theatrical energy. I don't know if he's yet on stage doing his crazy performances, but very soon he will be dressed as a flower, he will be dressed as Britannia, he will be dressed as a fox, and he will be dressed as the Slipper Man. And for those listening at home, the Slipper Man is a man made up, I guess, of garbage bags. I don't know, he's like a a sewer frog made of garbage bags. Difficult to tell. (laughs) Very difficult to tell. But point is, (laughs) I can't even look at these pictures. The point point is, Peter Gabriel will be dressed as all sorts. He will be on stage, and he will be thrusting his, his theater kid energy into the faces of the audience night after night. And I think that level of challenge to the audience is really punk. At least that's that's what I feel the point of punk was, is to challenge people. And I think other prog bands will have been like, oh, we're challenging their minds. But I think uh, Peter Gabriel is really just challenging you. Just he's saying, look at this. So that's what I would say about proto-punk. I like that. I like that. I was just looking at some of the images and I can see the influence for the Mighty Boosh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I was going to say, again, this is the, the, you know, Genesis brings literal theatricality, so that's kind of their contribution to these proceedings. It is really great. So we leave the land of, of the theater now and go to a, a, a Tony Banks Mellotron and organ song called Seven Stones. As Mike Rutherford says... I think Tony gets one of these songs on every album. And these are the obviously Tony songs where there's tons of Mellotron, tons of organ, and they're just filled with expansive chords and kind of soft, pillowy floating. I think Tony wrote the lyrics to this, but they they still, again, have a story. And it's a story about the tides of fate. So it, it pops in on a bunch of vignettes from various people and about how they just got to live with the the hand they're dealt. So how do you feel about this? I am a keyboard enthusiast. I love these kind of Tony washes. I feel like it's, it's a change of pace without being jarring. It's what a keyboard's for, isn't it? Ambience. To be in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what prog is. It's the only music where the keyboards are like right up front. Oh, yeah. People are like... You yeah, know, that seems fair, actually. <laughs> yeah. People trying to play them behind the heads and stuff, you know. Probably the two superstars of, of progressive rock would be Rick Wakeman and Keith Emerson. Mm. You know, they are the Jimi Hendrixes of progressive rock. And I think, again, it's why not have... I mean, not just four keyboards. Why not have 15 keyboards? And why not make one of them a guitar? And why not play a spinning piano... Like, why not do these things? I feel like if you're asking those questions, you're fully down the prog road. Oh, yeah, you're like 90% there. (laughs) (laughs) So I I personally love this song because I think it's got a swelling atmosphere that I really enjoy. Yeah, the last two minutes are really fantastic. And I feel like it gives Peter Gabriel, I guess we've just been talking a lot about him, but it gives him space to play. And I I feel like this is actually one of my favorite of his vocal performances on this album, because I I feel like the huge chords actually let him be melodic rather than funny or whatever he is. Mm. Yeah, it forces him to actually use his voice and actually sing. And he sings it fantastically. I, I can't I can't say I, I really took in what the the lyrics were on this, but you know we've 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 come away from rampant weeds and stuff, and it's romance now. It's time for romance, yeah. It's time for romance, yeah. It's funny because the previous songs are very sort of grand and talking about situations and things that aren't so personal, and then this comes along changes style quite considerably to the the previous songs and then solely becomes about an individual yeah and i find that quite interesting in that the lyrics have changed to almost match the musical style that they've gone with the uh with with the song or perhaps vice versa but even so i think it, it works quite well it would be weird right if they decided to continue with these kind of grand themes but then decided to change the musical structure whilst keeping similar lyrics. That would just be odd. That would be really odd. No, and I, I guess, again, that's another theme of this album is just that the lyrics and the instrumentation 
come together to craft these kind of story songs really well. So, speaking of story songs, <laughs> we uh, come to Harold Le Berel, which is purely, purely a theater song. It's actually pretty light on any really interesting instrumentation. It's a song about a guy who's about to jump off a building because I guess his business didn't go well or something like that. And he chops off his toes. There's there's a lot of humorousness in this song, or at least that's how it's presented. I can't think of anything funnier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hell? no, I was going to say this is, I, I, it's maybe humor doesn't translate well, but. No, but it's true because even, you know, Phil Collins has, has gone on the record and described it as uh as a as a record that that showed the humor of the band yeah i was gonna say it's kind of overtly humorous musical song as well where it's like that jaunty yeah. like do 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 yeah for sure and the drums replicate that as well with their sort of uh skipping along their break style yep. as it were i think this uh song frankly is uh not one of my favorites on the album but it flagged up something that I didn't really know about myself in regards to Genesis. I don't love it, but I pretty much never hate a Genesis song. Interestingly, I don't find them ever so aggressive or so annoying that I say, no, thank you, Genesis. I'm like, you know what? I, I skipped along for three minutes. Like, who's counting? Mm. I actually find them to be the least aggressive, you know, in a way that like ELP or King Crimson, if I don't like a song, <laughs> I don't like a song. That thing's getting skipped. It's yeah. getting skipped, and it's getting skipped fast. Mm-hmm. I think Genesis, worst that happens, I forget. I'm like, oh, that was delightful. Yeah, there was, there was no skipping on this one. Like, honestly, this whole album, it, it at least goes by, and I, I recommend everyone just put them all on and just see what you like. I have to say, I, I really like the fact that they put the effort in to change the tone. Yes. Like, I'm, I'm glad that track four and track five are different from track one, two, three. In quite considerable ways, but they are probably the weaker tracks, in my opinion, on the album. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, this comes to the, they actually have five writers, which really works. And actually, we, us three, had talked about this earlier on Days of Future Past. That's actually a really good way of making your albums interesting. If you can get everyone in a band to write a song, it just naturally creates a great diversity of material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and it all feels like a record, despite all the different sounds. It's still cohesive. Yeah, I tend to listen to music while I'm walking, and I find if something doesn't fit on an album, it it really stands out when I'm in that headspace. Because when you're walking, I think because you're seeing things in the background and stuff kind of washes over you kind of easily. But if an album's not put together right, it really clangs. Oh yeah, and there's no clangers in this one at all despite it chopping and changing. I guess it feels like, yes, this is side two of the record. That much is true. There's a, there is a shift, but it's that AB shift rather than a... Yeah, a hard, a hard smack. This madness, yeah. yeah. It's not a new album, it's just the other side, yeah. Yeah. Any other feelings about... Uh... Power of the Barrel? What is the... Ba- why was he the barrel? Was it just because he was fat? I don't, I don't know how Cockney Phil actually is, but this feels like it would be a... He's a local character. Uh, we call him yes. Harold the Barrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, by the way, that was an exceptional Cockney accent. <laughs> I just got kind of completely <laughs> glazed over that. There you go. That's, that's, my, so that's my Cockney impression. I love it. So, we've come to a Mike Rutherford piece, Harlequin. I actually don't even know what the song is about. I mean, assuming some sort of Harlequin clown, but it was just a really pleasant two minutes. Again, didn't stand out for me, good or bad. I couldn't really hum it if you asked me to. It was just there, being pleasant. And and Mike says, "Nah, I don't really like the song either." <laughs> <laughs> what a glowing endorsement! Yeah. It's very fragile, isn't it? It's it's like a. It's it's almost like a an interlude. A thank you for listening. Let's take a break and we'll get back to you with one more crazy song coming up next. Yeah, I imagine it was just an acoustic guitar scrap, but they've just done a theater song, and this I guess is just a perfect little breath of fresh air before we come to the big big one. And that's the thing. Like, not everyone wants an album that like every song is t- taking all your attention. No, 
I certainly don't. I like filler. <laughs> I like filler in an album. Because I listen to, I always listen to albums as an album. I never listen to just songs on their own. So for me, it's like that's how you do an album. It's stuff like this that makes it flow nicely. It's funny because in, like, in rap music, obviously this is much later on. In rap music, they have these sort of comedy... The skits. Skits, the skits. right? In between tracks. And I feel like sometimes prog rock has these skits, yep. but mm. in musical form. And not necessarily comedy, but just... A little something, little, yeah. Little breaks. Something different. Yeah. Just uh, here's your strange hors d'oeuvre yep. before we go on to the main course. You know? Well, and I was going to say, I think that's, um, you know, because famously on Dark Side, they will have both On the Run and Any Color You Like, which are just two kind of instrumentals, light instrumental songs. And uh, what a perfect thing to do, just to give you a little bit of like, whew, this is a, a little something. Yeah. Again, a little hors d'oeuvre, a canapé. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, okay, we've had our little Harlequin breath. That's what we did. We breathed some Harlequin. We've had our canapé. Now it's time to buckle yourselves down, because we're going into the entree. So, welcome to the Fountain of Solmassus. This is a song that will tell the tale of the Greek myth of Solmassus, the water nymph, and Hermaphroditus. The youth with a blend of male and female genitals, which will give its name to the term hermaphrodite. So, what do you guys feel about the song? I, th- I think I think this comes straight out of sort of Greek mythology. Oh, I mean, that's definitely ah. about Greek mythology, <laughs> and 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 it kind of goes back to the the sort of subject matter I'd almost expect from album one or two. Yeah, but that you know that's that's their upbringing, isn't it? That's the the school they went to and the sort of stuff they were learning in class. Yeah, so, public schools coming out in their songs. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It, it will continue through the next two albums as well, actually. Like that, they will still yeah. lean on explicitly <laughs> Greek myths. So yeah, well, it's you know it's who they are, but it's definitely not a Phil Collins song, that's for sure. <laughs> So it was written by Tony Banks at university, and then uh, it was developed from that afterwards. But what's interesting is Steve's guitar solo was done quite impromptu at about 12 o'clock at night, whilst they were all a bit drunk, which was very uh, very unlike the rest of their sort of production style. I think that's the only one that I can hear that the octave sound on. It's um, pretty prominent, so I think he was he was enjoying wailing on this one. I think, and actually, all of them really, in their way, they really wail on this. I think of this song as prog by the numbers. Like there's a, a little organ and and mellotron woo to kind of <laughs> like kick us off. There's all sorts of drums whizzing around. This you know the subject matter is Greek mythology. It's got the real prog by the numbers thing. And actually, I feel like, again, we started with the best of Genesis at the top, music box. We end again on the best of Genesis here at the end. I feel like they bookended this album really well with the best of what they do. And I think the thing I really love about this song is he's singing from the character's perspective, and he's singing a narrator part. And I hadn't really twigged what that was, because... He's singing the main part, and then in the background, you just hear someone like talking over him, but it's himself <laughs> narrating the story. <laughs> just a, a beautiful theatrical end, I guess. I see what you mean. It, it has all of the ruminations of a, of a classic prog rock song, doesn't it? I think it still has that Genesis tinge to it, but that might just be like how Peter Gabriel is deciding to sing. But it, it definitely brings back that chaotic energy that was missed in the few songs beforehand right i wonder why they decided to be so mythological with this one i think there's something about myths like and i think the greek myths specifically where i i would say that they're almost part of pop culture obviously we would never sing about the avengers now that would sound really weird because we don't think of them as myths yet but I think there's an element of if you sang a song about Iron Man, not Iron Man, but if you sang a song about <laughs> if you like sang about, about Tony Stark, I think obviously right now it'd be like, oh, you stupid shill, you're just sh- you know shilling for for Marvel. But actually, it would be for like ninety percent of the at least the nerd population, they would grasp onto it, 
And I think when you say, oh, Sisyphus, that guy who is rolling a stone up a hill, or Tantalus being tantalized, I think there's an element of myths that lend themselves well to songs because the best of the Greek myths, you could probably tell the story in five minutes. They're a really clear and visual thing. So, you know, like Prometheus is making people out of clay in the primordial earth or whatever. I think there's like an element of that that's really cinematic. And mm. I don't know enough about literature. I'm just a simple prog bumpkin. But I think <laughs> there's there's obviously deep currents here. And again, yeah. I guess as we touched on in the beginning, the fountain of Somasis and then the hermaphrodite thing will obviously touch on all sorts of conversations about gender and whatnot. Mm. I do not know what the Greeks were thinking about whatever they were thinking about. But obviously, you touch on these things, and they, they are a cinematic way of asking deeper questions. These stories are literally timeless, aren't they? Yeah. And they're undeniably good subject matter. What I find interesting is that it's not the typical choice of a working-class man in 1971. Yeah. You know, I, I guess that's the hallmark of prog rock, isn't it? It's it, it just being grandiose and over-the-top. Yeah, well, and I think drawing on literature rather than lived experience. And yeah, totally. Like the music of the masses is always about love, loss, repeat, isn't it? <laughs> Heartbreak, heart it, mending. You know. But I, I was going to say, I think, no, this is a grander defense of all bookish nerds across the world. I think you're exploring the same stuff just with a different lens. So I'm sure these little guys, you know, you're reading about Greek myths and you're still thinking about love, loss, betrayal, honor, valor, blah, 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 blah. You're thinking about the themes. You're just thinking about them through the lens of ancient myths. But I think it's all the same questions that have been asked forever. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, if you ever read any of those tales, you know, that they are talking about those things. Like I say, it's just not the, the language of the everyday folk. And, you know, this isn't the music of everyday folk. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And and I was going to say, I think to Genesis's credit, I don't feel like I'm listening to a lecture about Greek myths. I actually feel like I'm listening to a really pleasant song, and he puts the pathos right back into it. Like, I still feel like I'm at the Fountain of Somasis, or I'm knocking someone's head off with a croquet mallet. Like, <laughs> I, you know, you still feel all of the pathos and all of the... Yeah, all of the emotional energy still in these songs. I don't feel like they're kind of dry myths. I like that you used the word pathos. <laughs> Got to, I mean, you're talking about the Greeks. Beautiful. I also think that whilst I personally travel more towards Yes's lyrics, because I love psychedelic spirit nonsense, I will say because Genesis tells a story, I actually feel in many ways they're way more accessible as a mm. prog band because it's a story about something. Do you know what I want to hear with this this band at this time? It's not necessarily an album full of these odd concepts, <laughs> but like a whole album with that one theme. You know, I'll always talk about Jeff Wayne's War of the World because it does it the best. But there was a couple of songs on this that reminded me that, you know, the, the hogweed thing. Yeah. Did actually make me think of, of you know... An invasion, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like an obvious <laughs> parallel, but... World of the Worlds is like a perfect example of a prog rock album yeah. in that it does that and it's got a really good choice of subject matter right from the offset. Yeah, I, th- I feel like I'd like to hear this band doing that sort of thing at that time. So we we won't be touching on it at all with <laughs> this series, but obviously they did Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Right. I personally don't like that album, but it's a two-disc rock opera. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know what the theme exactly was, <laughs> but they explore telling a story through music. But I think that's the thing, though, is having the really good concept to start with in the first place. Yeah. So I have a kind of a, an overall question about the album. How well do you think all of the tracks in the album fit into the theme that's somewhat set in the musical box? This idea of sort of... England or being English and the English ideal not really being perfect and actually underneath is quite this horrible violent mess like that's that's what's conveyed on the album cover that's the tone they set with the first song I just don't know if they 
if they just decided on a whim to choose oh yeah this is the the most sort of catchy iconography we can go with to get people to listen to the album or maybe it was at random yeah but it doesn't seem in my eyes like they've chosen a theme and, and run with it throughout the album no i think you know only in so much that you know they they're kind of from that world you know being the public school boys and stuff and it's from their minds other <laughs> 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 than that no no not at all yeah. so either of you where does this album sit in the history of Prague, and where does it sit in the history of Genesis? Well, I'd, I'd say I'm, I'm very fifty-fifty with with Genesis anyway. But this one, yeah, it's it's a good one for me. I, I really enjoyed it. I've talked about my love of Steve Hackett's guitar sound, and I think I just love it. <laughs> but it's but to me, it's like I, when I listen to this, I'm thinking of more heavy rock because of that. And because of the drums, but maybe that's because of the version of the album that I've listened to. I don't know if I'd feel that way if I'd heard the original <laughs> at the time. So I don't know. But from what I've heard, this makes me put aside all the odd lyrical choice. <laughs> <laughs> but sonically, I'm 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 in a I'm in a world of heavy rock. I'm thinking like Zeppelin and yeah. that's 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 where I put this. But I think in seventy one, you know, Led Zeppelin are in album four. Yep. So it's so it's not even like modern in that sense. It's not doing anything groundbreaking. It's just doing something pleasing. But it's definitely one that uh, I have enjoyed, and I'm glad I was asked to to go and listen to. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk <laughs> with you about it. And so I think for me, this album, it's kind of obvious what it does in prog rock. Like it's a very proggy album, kind of as we said, prog by the numbers. I think it's actually more important for Genesis, the band, because on a practical level, it gives them their first commercial success. On a spiritual level, it integrates Phil and Steve into the band, and they'll obviously be integral to the artistic project of Genesis going forward. But I think the biggest one for me is that this is a dress rehearsal for Selling England by the Pound which will basically be a track-for-track remake of this album. And I think this album is the bursting with youthful creativity and then Selling England by the Pound, which will be two albums from now. They've refined their sound a lot, and that's their dark side of the moon, I think, where I think it's like every track is just great. All of the elements are there, but they're more honed. This is the first test run we're trying out organ solos, we're trying out Steve Hackett's guitar, we're trying out theatrical Peter Gabriel performances, we're trying out all these experiments, and we can't even pack them into the sausage casing. Like, it's bursting at the seams, dear God. And then we take the sausage out to the barbecue and let it sizzle for a while. (laughs) And we come up with a selling England by the pound in about two years. I definitely agree. It seems as if it is a case of Genesis finding their sound for the moment. Yes. And I think it's clear that they haven't done anything new, Mm. but they didn't need to. No. They just needed to do everything right. And I think they did everything right. So it's a pleasant album to listen to. Yes. Some good songs in there. It's not a bad listen. And it's clear you can see where they're going with it. And, uh... You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go listen to England by the Pound now <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to hear what you're saying. So for everyone's homework now, everyone listening at home, <laughs> if you enjoyed this album at all, Selling England by the Pound is this, but better, is my, my verdict on that. And with that homework assigned, I guess I'll sign off here. I have been your host, Ian Prize. I want to thank my guests, Rufus and Ed. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. If you have any longer thoughts or queries, you can write to me at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. Do rate us on wherever you're listening to this. I believe it does help somehow. So that was Genesis's 1971 nursery crime. This lineup would signal a creative flowering in the band, and Genesis would go on to make three more albums with this set of people. Foxtrot, the next album in 1972, the epic rock opera Lamb Lies Down on Broadway in 1975, and Stuck Right In Between Them, 
Selling England by the Pound in 1973, where we will catch up with Genesis in but a few weeks' time. But next week, we are traveling down to Canterbury, deep in the Garden of England, where a musical heartbeat is quickening. But it's very slow and very relaxing. Please join us for Caravans in the Land of Grey and Pink. Let me sit down and put on my headphones.